Hi, this is Mr. Saad of MyPartnerIsKinky.com, and you're listening to the Massacast. Massacast is free and supported by listeners like you. If you like what you hear, and we're sure you will, please become a supporter of the Massacast by going to the website and clicking donate. Hi, and thanks for downloading another Massacast, and Happy New Year. I'd like to thank those of you who donated last month. Uh, covered all of the expenses last month because of the donations we got. Thank you very much. So those people who donated last month, again, covered all of December's costs taken care of. Meanwhile, this episode for the new year, talking with uh, Irene Boss, uh, Dominatrix, uh, also web connoisseur, online video guru uh, out of Pittsburgh. Talk to her via Skype. Um, in this conversation, there's going to be a brief period where it's just going to, well, I'll, I mean, I'll come back in and I'll explain what happened. But basically, we stopped uh, recording so I could get some coffee. And then she started talking about this event, Fet Fest. And, and before I could start recording again, she started talking about it. So then you'll hear this little break. I'll come back in and, uh, and explain it when it happens. But uh, here it is, my conversation with Irene Boss. I, I will admit that I usually don't do a lot of research before... I interview people, and that does that. That helps in two ways. Number one, it's all fresh. I'm not asking a question I already know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, two, it's an excuse for me to be lazy. <laughs> but no, and all and all and all and all seriousness, though, I I did some, you know, about a half hour beforehand. I usually dedicate the half hour beforehand to read a little bit up about the person, if they've if they've published anything. And when I I told you this before we started recording, when I Googled you, I broke Google. There was so much stuff that came back. It was overwhelming and it was I was like where do I start so I guess I guess the first thing I guess we could talk about is is uh how did you first realize you were kinky well I was very young uh, probably three or four years old and I was very attracted to things that were fetishy uh, for example activities or certain types of clothing and this just kept getting stronger so my first orientation to BDSM had to do with the clothing and uh, I went into costume design and theater for a while, not really understanding why I was so attracted to the arts and theater and costume design. It was always kind of a sexual thing for me, but I didn't really understand it. And I really didn't even know what domination was till I was about 27. So I was around all this creative stuff for quite a long time, but I wasn't cognizant about BDSM or people playing or any of that stuff until my late 20s which is pretty much when I became a dominatrix, I was 27. So I came at it a little bit later than many people do. I always find it really interesting of how people find it professionally. Some people kind of just, they meet someone who says, you know what you should do, or they stumble upon an ad. But it's always a very unique experience, I find. How did you, how did you discover that as a career? Well, I got led into it because when I was done with college, I had all of the loans, you know. What are you going right. to do to take care of the student loans? So. I went into the adult business and I tried some different aspects of the adult business. I tried dancing, I tried modeling, um, and people were always telling me that I would be very good at being a dominatrix and I would just laugh at them. In fact, the first time I gave someone a spanking, I just laughed because it was so ridiculous to me that somebody would want me to do this. Right. But then I began to understand it. So I found people were seeking me out for my energy. They identified it as dominant. In fact, I'm an emotional sadist, so I have to tone it down to be a pro-dom. I have to bring out the nicer part of myself and 
not want to psychologically wound everybody all the time, but I could get away with quite a bit of that in the strip bars, and it set me apart from the other girls or ladies. Uh, and I was very different and unique, and I started actually dominating men in those places without really understanding what I was doing. Then I started getting into magazines and other things and learning more. This is right around the time before the Internet began. Right. So I got into domination before the Internet. And you, you said you were, you were sort of dominating the, the clientele at the strip club. All the time. How did that That's, how did that manifest itself? Was that you were just kind of pushing them around a little bit or you were just Well, it started out with them being kind of topping from the bottom. This is what I like, you know. But then I started to figure out I could do what I wanted and they would be happy with that. So I would learn how to spy them out. Uh certain outfits I would wear would bring out uh certain types of behavior from people. Like what? And they, do you have like Well, a anything that had to do with boots corsetry, hats, anything that was just different from what everyone else was wearing. Instead of wearing bikinis and uh, tea backs, I was wearing, you know, suits and costumes and uniforms and right. just things that nobody else really thought of wearing. And this had to do with the costume background that I had. And people found that costuming to be very exciting. So I learned a lot about fetishism by being in the uh, dancing industry. And... Uh, and so you started as a pro and you said that you didn't, at first you didn't really understand, like you said you, you were giving someone a spanking and you were, you were kind of laughing. I yeah, my first pro session, I just laughed the whole time. I, I thought it was, it was, but I thought it was kind of wonderful too, because it was really honest that somebody would trust me to do something like that with them. So I was self-taught. I had no mentor. I had no other lady to look to because Pittsburgh isn't really a huge place for BDSM. That's only been recently that the internet has helped educate so many of us about all of this. So and I think I find, I find that to be a, kind of a common story is that when someone, if they're not uh, naturally inclined to certain activities, like say spanking, mm -hmm. um, and if they either do it for a partner or they, they're doing it professionally, I have a lot of friends who are pros and they, they kind of find Sometimes it takes six months. Sometimes it takes a year. It's not like a spark that lights up initially, it seems. like they It can... takes time. Yeah, it's, it almost glows like an ember. I had always enjoyed rough sex, and I'd always been the aggressor and dangerous things, too, uh, from my teens. So becoming a dominatrix was um, kind of a, a departure from that because, of course, with professional domination, there's things you don't do. Right. There's boundaries. And I think as an emotional sadist, the one thing professional domination does give me is some structure and boundaries. It contains my natural desire in such a way that I can enjoy it with someone I don't even know. And I am kinky enough to get off on playing with people I don't know, as most pro-dons are. We have that in us. We like to be around strangers and explore strange things. And also we like having the no strings after. So I think being a pro-dom is very exciting to women who are like me for that reason. No, I'm, I'm curious, like, mm -hmm. uh, since you, you said you didn't really have a mentor, mm -hmm. did, you, did you experience, um, I, I imagine a common experience would be, especially if you're new to it, someone showing up and asking for something you'd never heard of before. Oh, that happened all the time, and I was just very honest over the phone, because before we had email, we had the phone, 
And I would say, well, you know, I'm very curious about that, and I have a good attitude and an open mind, and I've never done it, but I'll give it a shot. So how <laughs> and so people were kind of refreshed by that. So I, I learned from the clients, actually, how to do what I do. I learned from them. So how would it, like, do you remember anything in particular that maybe someone had mentioned something you'd never heard of before, and you were like, whoa, I never imagined that. That sounds pretty awesome. Is there anything in particular that kind of stands out to you as being something that would eventually become one of your you know, favorite things to do? I'd say definitely the whipping because there's always been kind of a shortage of ladies who throw whips. Mm -hmm. uh, so I attracted a lot of those folks and I remember when I first started to throw whips I really didn't know what I was doing at all. It took quite a while to learn. It took about a year. Right. And also some of the crazy role plays I found were just a lot of fun. Like especially well, Star Trek role plays. <laughs> uh, people who fetishize TV shows or things they had heard on the radio. Uh, I found fetishism interesting because it, it was so uncompromising. It wasn't directly sexual. And the fact that someone could find something like a TV show sexual was really interesting to me. I'm curious how your exploration as a pro, how that bled into your personal life. Did you find yourself expanding your boundaries in your personal life as well? Or were you finding that there was so much, um, this, this also seems like a common theme of, of friends of mine that sometimes they'll have like a vanilla relationship when they're first starting out because they don't need anything extra kinky, you know, mm -hmm. in their lives. Uh, and then I hear the opposite to be true too, that sometimes someone will uh, start being a pro and they'll, they won't consider themselves vanilla, but they won't consider themselves extremely into BDSM or anything like that. And then they'll find that they, they start craving more and more extreme things in their personal life because of, you know, sort of like something that's almost like there's a fuse being lit in their scenes professionally. Mm -hmm. And then that, you know, they, they have to have the explosion when they get home, so to speak. Well, I've, uh, someone who's tried everything. So I've tried every relationship you can probably imagine okay. and different orientations just to see where I fit in. And I finally uh, figured out that I'm a polyamorous pansexual kind of person, but I also need to have a monogamous relationship to keep me grounded and be with someone who accepts me and allows me to have other relationships. And not very many people can do that for another person. Uh, but most pro-doms do have that interesting sexuality. We're not like everybody else, especially if we stay in it. It'd be very hard to be involved in this for very long without being multisexual. So um, I guess to answer the question, uh, when I started exploring, my personal life got very freaky and crazy. I really enjoyed that. I didn't feel bad about that at all. Um, my sessions uh, were very freaky and crazy when I was new to BDSM. I didn't have any no-nos. I basically did everything I wanted to do to see how I felt about it. And then if I didn't feel good about something, I just wouldn't include that thing, but it might still be on the menu for my personal life. So I kind of learned about my boundaries through being a pro-dom. I don't know very many people who have done that, but for me it worked at the time. I was young and I didn't have a lot of responsibilities and uh, I didn't have uh, a primary relationship at that time, so mm -hmm. it was okay. But then um, I wanted grounding. I decided I wanted to own a building to put my business in and I wanted uh, someone to work with me to share the creative aspect. And uh, since I'm an artist, I end up obviously having relationships with other artists. So eventually I met someone and we began to create a, a DVD business together. Uh, he was a musician um, and his 
former vanilla life and me being a painter, performance artist, it kind of all came together. And in the beginning, he tried everything. He tried um, everything you can imagine that had to do with BDSM. But he finally figured out that he is a voyeur. But that's perfect for being a videographer, right. being someone who enjoys to watch. So he's satisfied by that. And he enjoys watching me. I'm a bit of an exhibitionist. So we kind of arrived at something together. And I've, I've learned something about these BDSM businesses over the years. The ones that are the most passionate, there's usually a couple in the background running them. There's um, a core relationship. And the strength of that relationship and the enjoyment of the creative aspects of BDSM often is what's propelling that business, that drive. Because if you think about it, a lot of couples who are running these businesses, we do the jobs of like three and four people. Each person does. And it's because of the passion towards the relationship and the activity. So I don't see very many of these businesses being very successful where there's just one person running them. I find that very interesting. Yeah, because it's also, yeah. it's, it, you ha in order to, since it's such a niche market, you, you do kind of have to be passionate about it because if, if you, know, you release a DVD that doesn't, you know, doesn't do well as the others, you have to at least have enjoyed the experience of making it for it to be worth, you kinda, I can imagine someone getting jaded doing that, make, doing stuff they don't, they don't really, they aren't passionate about, right? Oh, that can happen very easily. In fact, I have to be careful not to make too much stuff because the, I think there's just too much stuff out there right now. There's a lot of junk, and um, I think it's good to limit the amount of content you make so the relationships between the people are real. Like, I don't make any content at all with somebody I don't have a connection with because there is no connection on video. Um, I make videos with people I've known for quite a while, so that tension is there. I know what to expect from them. Every once in a while, I think you can play with a stranger and get lucky. But it's too much like gambling to me, and I don't want to take the chance. So I haven't played with a stranger on film in probably over 10 years now. Wow. Uh, but I find that the connections are better, and I can use the little quirky things about my personality and their personality, and I can get a... I can get some realism out of them. You know, I can get the consensual, non-consensual stuff, and that's really what people want to see a lot of in my films. Um, for some strange reason, when I'm really pissed off, that comes across as being very entertaining. I don't particularly <laughs> like that, but my best videos, so people say, are the ones where things get really edgy. Right. And you can't get really edgy with a stranger because you don't have a connection with them. So I think you can do some really kinky uh, physical stuff that can be very erotic, but as far as... Um, having some psychological um, feeling for the video, that can come across if you have a real connection with the other person, if you know those buttons. You can definitely tell a difference between BDSM media that has a connection between two people and when there, there's people who either don't like each other or don't know each other enough. Because they have to... There has to be a lot of trust there, right? Just like as, as yeah. there does any type of play. Well, see, I look at BDSM as connecting, and that's why BDSM has such a harsh rub with the escort industry because a lot of what escorts do is to zone out and disconnect, whereas BDSM is about connecting. So BDSM porn can become very flat easily if there is a disconnect there, and you can tell. Uh, so, you know, anyone could make... Um, a wanker movie and a lot of times I call what I do wanker movies because there isn't really any classification for 
BDSM porn. I like to try to call it erotica. People will bear with the definition, but a lot of times they just kind of label it as porn. I find that I appreciate watching things that have thought, that have a premise, that have some kind of plot, that have some kind of thought about lighting, uh, the setting. Now, you can get some really good stuff off the cuff, and I've been able to do that at times. But if it becomes too formulaic or homogenized, you will lose your viewers after a while. You have to entertain them into seeing more, and they will form relationships with the people who are in your films. They want to see what's, what's next. What's this person going to do next? So I think having a cast of characters that are all involved with each other is really important to making something successful that people are going to stick to and want to watch again. Well, that was one thing, too, that... Uh... I was really amazed by when I when I was doing your your Google when I was like I said when I was googling you, um, that there is so much. I mean, there's a lot of video out there, and, and just looking at uh, this, the descriptions and the you know the uh, information on the different videos, these don't seem like the formulaic videos that because I, I I stopped looking for femdom porn. I, well, I should say I didn't look that long because it all seemed I was basically just looking at like kink.com and those ones. And those are fine for what they're for, but every episode or every scene is exactly the same, it seems like. Like you said, it's very formulaic. But when I was looking at uh, the DVDs you've put out, they seem so varied. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so many different types of activities. And uh, it, ju it seems like you've put a lot of thought into it rather than just the spank, uh, strap on, guy has an orgasm woman maybe you know the guy doesn't get to the guy doesn't get to have an orgasm hardly ever in my movies it just <laughs> right. doesn't happen right. i'm not saying that that doesn't happen in playtime but the reason i don't use that as the way to end the video is because so many people do that so when i started making videos uh, by the way my first cameraman was a riot he worked for the football uh team here station four news and he had this big creaky tripod so in my first movies you can hear the tripod going you know getting the scene um i wanted to make movies for myself so i was raised a strict catholic and the first movie i made for myself was called smoking nuns and we actually had to go and find outfits that nuns wore and we had to think about how nuns would behave and the perversion of all of this was smoking cigarettes doing a spanking scene. The guy is obviously over 35, but he's dressed like a high school student. I mean, the whole thing was a riot, but mm -hmm. it has some very genuine energy because I was pulling out of myself, kind of like Stanislavski. How did I feel when this stuff happened to me when I went to Catholic school and kind of imparting that with really strict discipline and modern implements and in a BDSM dungeon? And I got a lot of good uh, response from that because it was so real to people, even though some things about it were obviously quite ridiculous. The age of the person being spanked, um, you know, us being nuns, the whole thing. But it worked on some levels and it resonated with people. And I thought, okay, I could do this. Uh, so I really didn't think I was going to use what I went to college for for anything. Um, <laughs> you know, you never do. But you end up putting it all together. So I got kind of lucky. I was able to be a dominatrix and also make these movies. And then I started getting into the custom videos, and that's more about doing what other people want to see. And I think that's kind of started to take over a little bit. So we've gone from watching hour-and-a-half DVDs to five-minute clips. Uh, but people are still watching the DVDs. Uh, they're just more influenced by quick and dirty, I want the favorite parts and I want it condensed, kind of like 
what MTV did right. to television, Clips for Sale has kind of done to um, erotic, uh, well, erotica. We'll call what we do erotica here. It's um, a reverent description. So I'm not saying Clips for Sale is bad, uh, but it has definitely changed the way we look at this, and it's changed the fetishist. And fetishes are coming out of the woodwork that, I mean, balloons, bubblegum, tongues, uh, ears, you know, there's Yahoo groups for these things now. So all of it has changed because of the Internet, and I don't think it's necessarily bad, but it has changed the way I shoot as well. It's changed the way I describe what I do. And I find it very interesting that there are producers and their primary, uh, their primary involvement is in their Clips for Sale store. So we should say, yeah. for, the, for those people who don't know, Clips for Sale is a website that specializes in basically online video uh, having to do with kink. Mm-hmm. And and you said you've been sort of dealing with uh, custom videos. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed anything in you know, have, I'm, I was going to ask you this about DVDs, but I can ask mm-hmm. you this about videos as well. Have you noticed any sort of arcs of popularity? Like, okay, now this is very popular right now. I get a lot of requests for this. Or have you noticed anything like changes over the past, you know, like is there something right now that's really popular that wasn't especially popular? Any activities in particular? I think that the mingling of lifestyle into... Uh, um, professional BDSM is something that the internet has really kind of, it's like a, a rock that's rolling down the hill and it's rolling a little bit faster. When you, when you talk about sites like kink.com, uh, and, you know, I have nothing against kink.com. I think their websites are beautiful and they have very talented people working for them, uh, but they do not believe in professional domination. I find this very interesting. They do not think that professional domination should even exist. But they're making this uh, very interesting erotic media. Uh, and now uh, there is a tendency, I've noticed this, um, uh, the pro-dom people are making media that is more sexual. And I see this happening more since the advent of the Internet than before. There was a bigger separation between classical domination, or old guard, if you will call it, and the sexual aspect. Um, so it was basically unheard of uh, when the Internet began for ProDom to do anything sexual in a video at all. You just didn't see it at all. Right. We had the, the OWK was the biggest thing around in, like, 1996. It was the first big site on the Internet. And it really did shape a lot of what we look at today, even. Uh, and now we see a mingling in of other activities that could even be considered vanilla. Yeah. And this has all become acceptable now, and it's up to the ProDom to kind of say to her play partners, if she wants to disclaim, okay, you can watch this on video, but you can't come do this with me. <laughs> right. Because, and it's created a lot of confusion. Because they, they, they'll expect, you know, if they see someone doing that in video, they'll think that's what they do uh, if they're going to go yeah, pay for they it. Can see, they can see a pro-dom do that with a woman, and they think, oh, well, I can do that too. Well, no, that was a woman, so you can't <laughs> even do it with a woman and expect it to be you know, different. But I think that's just because we're so visual. We see something and we want it. Right, and also, yeah. um, I, I, re- I remember the very first uh, BDSM porn I bought. It was on a DVD, and I, you know, I went to the DVD store that was like nearest my town, so I had to drive like two hours or something like that. And I remember watching it, and I, and I didn't know what to expect, um, but I remember there not being any sex in it, and I remember wondering why that was, and because, again, I had no experience in BDSM at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've known I was kinky since I was a very young age, but this was, this was sort of my own personal exploration into it. And um, and it was almost the fact that almost because there were all these activities and sex wasn't in there, 
almost made it a little more, I don't know, exciting, I guess, I think is the word. Um, yes. Um, and but whereas now, because there is a lot of sex in video, do you think it maybe makes, let's say if there's a spanking scene and then there's sex afterwards, does it almost make the kink part secondary? I guess it would depend on the focus of how it's being presented. Right. Um, and it has to do also with the relationships between the people who are behind, well, in front of the camera, uh, what their motivation is. I think when the motivation is purely financial uh, to produce or be involved in, it does change things a little bit. There's something about art being important. So if you're doing something because you really enjoy it and it's you and it's part of your kink and you're also making a living, you know, that will come across. If you're just doing something to make a living, I believe that also comes across. So the more passionate things I find, there's just a lot more thought there. Yeah. And as a woman, especially a woman who watches pornography, I need a certain level of atmosphere and set and idea behind something for my mind to get interested in it. I mean, I can do the body part thing, and that's fine for a quick fix, but in order to get really engaged in something psychological, I want to be seduced by what I'm seeing. So that's how we shoot. We tend to think about what the female viewer would see because we do want women and couples to watch. We do have a large percentage of men who watch too, but I find if you play to the women, the men will kind of follow. So the biggest compliment I get is when pro-doms or dominant ladies say, I like your videos because da-da-da-da-da, for whatever reason. But I get a lot of good feedback from them. Uh, whereas uh, a man might write in and say, oh, the woman that wore that outfit had a really great ass. You know, I'll hear right, <laughs> from a lady right. and it'll be something else. Like, I really liked what you were getting across in that video, how that person was trained and the certain steps you took. And so there's just a difference in how men and women look at this stuff. Okay, so here's the point in which uh, I got up to get some coffee, I stopped recording, and then uh, she started talking about FetFest, and uh, I started recording at that point. So here's, here it is right here. A really fun event. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've heard a lot about FetFest, and I'm recording yeah. again now, by the way. Okay, I've, okay, I've, okay, I've that's heard, good. I've heard, I've heard a lot about it, but yeah. um, I know I've never been. Uh -huh. um, it was the first one, and we did not go to film. We just went to check it out. And it was basically open to everyone of any persuasion and BDSM lifestyle. It was on a private area of Ramblewood, which means it's a private resort, so there's no ridiculous laws or people saying, you can't do that, or you got to put a bathrobe on to walk from point A to point B. There was none of that. In fact, uh, there were naked people in front of my booth. Okay. There were people having sex in front of my booth. And I'm like, uh, George, there's people over there having sex in the grass. He goes there is and we're like okay and it was funny because we're dressed up in uniforms and outfits but we became very sexy to the naked people <laughs> because we were the BDSMers of course but I found it was just such a nice mix because it was very honest and there were a lot of professional people there that were also interested in this in their personal lives but I hadn't ever been around anything quite like FetFest it was very unusual uh, to be there, and uh, the vending was under tents, so it was all outside. It was 90 degrees in the shade, but there was such a good sense of camaraderie there. In the evenings, they had some very primitive fire dance rituals, uh, which were fascinating. They roasted a pig. You know, they did some really primal things there. 
Um, but the whole thing was uh, two days long. I told him it really needs to be longer. So it had a little bit of the Burning Man aspect to right, it. Right, it sounds that way, yeah. Yeah, and there was a lot of camping out, but we were princesses. We stayed at the Hilton because we're not really good campers, but maybe another time we'll, we'll try that. But I just felt such a sense of community that I hadn't felt in such a long time, and it had to do with the absence of the ridiculous portable electronic devices and video cameras and all that other stuff yeah. and just getting back down to basics with people. Because sometimes the visual media... Uh, it becomes very intrusive, you know, having cameras around all the time. You, you need a break from it sometimes. So even though we were asked to film and they said, you guys are the official videographers, film anything you want. I'm like, no, we just want to want to check it out. And I think we did film one thing. Uh, we filmed the clip washing, which I wish they would really change the name for. That's kind of, it sounds a little negative. <laughs> it's actually um, a woman lays on a board and is pinioned down with um, a metal device and different water tubes are used. Uh, but it wasn't filmed for any kind of um, sale or anything like that, just a record of it. It was almost like we were filming as documenting it, not uh, to process it. So is it is it similar to like, you know, what someone might do, what a woman might do in the shower, that type of? Yes. Oh, okay. It's the exact kind of thing. It so sounded there like a holy things. ritual that you might see in the Deep <laughs> South. You know, I was like, what? It had such a strange connotation to it. There was also supposed to be uh, a Boston pea party, which never got off the ground. And I think, I think part of that had to do with a little bit of the shame. But so many people just got interested in public sex well, that also, you know they would they would lose interest in other things that were going on. Well, they did, also didn't want to ruin their pilgrim uniforms. <laughs> I think that it should be standard for those people wanting to participate in that event. So it was successful enough that they're going to do it next year. But whenever I stumble upon something that's kind of new, interesting, or exciting, I like to share it. And I do all the traditional trade shows. I have to for my business. I do Venus Fair, AVN, DomCons, FetishCons. Uh, I do a lot of standard trade shows. It was good to do one that was a little off the beaten path. Well, that, that's great. Yeah, yeah. But I'm telling a lot of people about it just because it's a lot of fun. And I also want to get this in before I forget. I want to encourage people listening to this podcast to donate to MasaCast to keep it going. Um, it's really important to keep these types of things going. So if you're listening to this, I want you to donate. You know, $100 is a good fair amount um, and, you know, it helps with the maintaining of the website and compensates people a little bit for their time in doing this. It is a labor of love. So um, you can add that wherever you want to in our interview. If well, you want to patch that at the end or not use it at all, it's up to you. But should, I just didn't want to forget to say it. I should say also, if, if enough people donate $100, mm -hmm. I'll be doing the next one from Cancun. <laughs> well, let's talk about money and porn. <laughs> When I first got into BDSM, um, and I had one of the first websites alongside OWK, so I, was able, I was able to go live in Hawaii for a month and live off my website. Really? Yeah. So that is, that is how much things have changed. Now you would have to have 100 websites, and you would have to be updating them constantly and you know, being that hamster on that wheel and feeding the beast constantly to reach that income level. But a long time ago, in the, in the 90s, there weren't very many websites that were femme dom. And so that's because my, it was, yeah, yeah because you good. had very limited amount of people, right? Yeah. So uh, websites like Clips for Sale changed the entry barrier. So now anybody, and I have a saying, this is really funny, there's people um, producing Clips for Sale stores out of their uncle's garage with their dog behind the camera. And I'm not saying it's a down it. It's just really changed the way we look at all of this. 
just just as I'm sure there are some people out there who uh, will listen to the podcast and go, he's using MP3, but that's the lowest quality audio, you know. Um, but that being said, I remember like the very first there was a website, and I think it was like the only one I could find at the time that had that had to do with a strap-on play. And I remember, you know, like each video, if you wanted to download it, it would it would take you like first off, it would take you like two hundred hours to download. But mm-hmm. also, it costs like $40 for the video, just for one video, right? Um, uh, now, now one, one, one can say, oh, well, isn't it great that there's so much variety out there? But also, because the, I imagine just the, in order to compete, you have to cut corners, so, you know, sort of. And oh, yeah. Can't do yeah the same. I didn't even bother to try. When the whole Clips for Sale thing got started, I'm like, I'm going to put my things that are like, 15 years old up they're new again right right <laughs> 10 years old maybe some trailers but i try to save what's new to put it on dvd it's special and people come up to me a lot of times they go why are you still making dvds what's the point well you can't give somebody an internet um uh, pass as a gift you can give someone a dvd as a gift right uh, a dvd can be um uh you know it can be special it's kind of like the difference between a book and a kindle yeah uh, there's some similarities, but some differences. I still can't get used to my Kindle. I have one. Uh, I take it when I travel because, you know, books are heavy. Um, but um, I still watch a fair amount of DVDs, and I do watch quite a bit of Internet as well. So I'm kind of in the middle with that. So I still find a value in making it. Now, when you see me stop making DVDs, you know that it's no longer worth the candles for the wax. Right. Because I was the first company to make a DVD in BDSM. We were the first ones. So a lot of people were really mad at us because they had warehouses filled with millions of VHS tapes. Yeah. And when we went to our first AVN, we didn't even have a product. We faked it. We showed up and we <laughs> we put some box covers together and somebody came up to the booth and said, I'd like to buy 50 copies of 50 titles. And I'm like, uh, we better get some products made. <laughs> so it kind of forced us into the business. So the first year we were in the business, we really didn't know if there would be a call for it. We just kind of made it up, and it happened from there. And then after we got involved in DVD, Blu-ray came along. Oh, wow. We decided not to do Blu-ray uh, because we would have to charge so much um, uh, to the distributors to keep the product out there. So we just went high definition. Right. And Blu-ray is great for Hollywood productions. They're making 10,000 pieces BDSM, people typically do short runs. They'll make 300 of a title. We make 700 to 1,000 of a title. It can take you 5 to 10 years to sell 1,000 pieces of a title in BDSM. It can take a very long time. Yeah. So you don't want to be making so much product that it becomes junk. You know, I have rules. I'm like, I will never sell it for for under this amount of money. A new release will always cost this much money. I have these standards that I stick by, and that's why my DVD business has survived. We've watched a lot of them change. We've watched some of our distributors go out of business due to the economy. But the people who have stayed in the business, interestingly, have kept their business boundaries very strong. They haven't been wavered or scared by the economy. They've had to make some shifts and changes. But this is why you don't see so much DVD product out there anymore. A lot of people have simply stopped making it. And I thought, what's going to happen after DVD? Is it all going to go to the Internet? Who knows? I think that right now people are watching a lot of things on their iPads and other types of devices. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, there's, you're, you're right. There is something very different about like popping in a DVD. Or- yeah, you can watch it with a room full of people, whereas uh, it's hard standing around a computer, you know, crowding around a computer or passing around a PDA. 
Um, I think that there's still something to be said. People are still buying DVDs. Right. So I guess we'll be in it for as long as we're allowed to be in it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. and the nice thing, too, is that you know the move from DVD to, uh, to like, if it was on the web is not a it's not a difficult change you know it, it's not it's not a complete it's not a complete shift you know it's not like you're gonna have to be ordering completely new media you just have to upload a big file right yes um, yes I have to change and re-edit things uh, uh, when a lot of uh, when CC bill got really big and clips for sale you know started growing they became um, I think you've noticed this too very conservative about what they would allow to be seen and I'm like you guys don't want the things to be seen by the, you know, this is the stuff that people really want to see. Right. So I ended up uh, uh, being responsible for helping to change some of that. So, you know, it might look very strange to somebody who's vanilla that somebody wants to get a caning and have marks on their fanny, but to them, the people who are doing the caning, receiving the caning, that is the sex. Yeah. And you can't judge that. Well, that's like saying straight sex isn't sex. So I've noticed that um, things are starting to relax a little bit again, uh, which is good. It's good for BDSM. It's good that, you know, it's it's all kind of finding its level again. Yeah, because, you know, I think that's one thing that it, it, there, there stands to be a risk if every, sing, every single scene, whether it's male top and female bottom or male male or whatever, if every BDSM scene is just... Um, you know, some sort of small act followed by hardcore sex, then it sort of homogenizes the BDSM. Yeah, right? that's why I don't even bother with the sex. I don't even put it in my movies at all. I, mean, right. I have a few that have some, some lesbian movies because I know some of the fetish models that go to fetish con every year and, and they know each other and when we put them in movies together. We say, who, do you, who would you like to work with? And they're really good actresses and they put a lot of effort into it and there's passion in it. It's real. It comes across as something desirable to watch. But for the, the femdom male sub-videos, um, I don't have any femdom male sub-videos with any type of vanilla sex act. And I think if I decided I wanted to do that, I would retire as a pro-dom before that so as not to make a big, confusing mess. Yeah, and yeah. I know there are people who are able to do it. God bless them. Uh, <laughs> uh, for me, um, I, and, and by then it'll be too late because it's been done too much. Nobody will want to watch it anymore because <laughs> well, there's so much of it. Well, I'll have to come up with something else. <laughs> you might find the same thing to be true that they'll, if they'll, they'll be more interested in seeing it if there's a real connection, right? Yeah. Now by that time, I'm certainly going to be behind the camera, <laughs> not in front of it, because <laughs> I'm real. I'm at an interesting point too, where I'm thinking about: Do I really want to be in front of the camera anymore? I mean, how much of this do I need to really do? So I'm at that stage, and there's a lot of things I film that I've not released that I just save for myself and watch with my friends or just destroy, you know? Not everything I make gets out there. Is it because you don't put it out there because it's too revealing? or Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's too revealing. Sometimes I feel it's not going to be interesting enough. It's going to be too dull. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's because it's, uh, it's just so personal. Like, we made a very naughty movie. Uh, we were in upstate New York one time with um, a woman who was a switch that was actually a dom uh, alongside myself at my studio, and we just got kind of crazy and made a silly video, and I'm like, we're never, ever going to release that. <laughs> but <it sounds laughs> and like I think we all do it. We all make porn for ourselves sometimes, and it's fine. Well, uh, you've mentioned a few things over the course of this conversation that I thought maybe we'd, we'd, we'd talk about. One, one is, um, well, since we're on the topic of females, you, you play with both men and women. Um, and I'm always curious 
because I always I seem to always hear different answers to this question. Do you play differently with men, men and women, other than the obvious, you know? Well, in the beginning, I was very intimidated by women, um, and which is really strange because my sexuality, when I was growing up, I think I was gay when I was a kid, and it was pounded out of me. I was, uh, they kept moving my school around. You're hanging out with those girls again. We're going to put you in this school over here. Yeah. So by the time I became an adult, I, I began having relationships with men, but the thing about the women was always in there. So in the beginning, I was very intimidated by women. I was too gentle. I didn't think I could do anything. Boy, was I wrong. I mean, they can, they can take a lot. So I find that the lesbian players, um, there's a, a roughness there and a realness there. And you find the same thing between the gay guys. You can find... And how do they get away with some of the things they do? Why, do, why are gay men allowed to make scat videos and the straight people can't? <laughs> There's some things that just don't make sense to me. And I think it's... Maybe it's because no one wants to admit they're watching those movies. That's probably... I'm guessing that's what it is, right? I don't know. I just find it very peculiar. So I find a lot of um, eroticism in watching gay porn and gay BDSM porn at that. And I also like watching Femdom. I watch just about everything. I have some transsexual material that I've created, uh, which is also, I find, very interesting. Um, when I was with the gay fellow, I also knew transsexual people. I had a transsexual slave for a while. It did not end well, um, but it was a relationship nonetheless. And, you know, I've moved on from that since. So I've got just, you're right, when you look at my stuff, you see there's been a little bit of everything because I've, Kind of dabbled in a little bit of everything. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, what is the what is the scene like in Pittsburgh? You briefly mentioned earlier that uh, it was kind of quiet until the internet kicked in. I think the internet gave people a way to communicate and get together without necessarily the pressure of the phone call. So they could all get together at a restaurant, look at each other from across the room, and decide if they were part of the munch or not. You know. So yeah. I think it started bringing people together. There's some people that own BDSM clothing stores in town that have had various parties, and they've hosted the groups. Uh, there's certain tribe groups. Of course, uh, Fet Life has helped immeasurably, but before Fet Life, there was Caller Me. Mm -hmm. And the BDSM and lesbian community here used to occasionally host famous people to come in and talk, talk about the books they've written, or doms who are educators would come in. So um, I am not at the fulcrum of any part of the scene in Pittsburgh. I've pretty much stayed out of it because early on I found that it's, it, I have to choose sides too much. And I wanted to not have to do that. So this is my home base. I travel a bit. And occasionally, I will venture out into the community, but I'm not really part of any kind of local scene here, but I am recognized as somebody who's into BDSM who lives here. Sure. But I do know who the people are who are really involved in BDSM here in a lifestyle capacity. I have good, friendly relationships with them in terms of online and occasional phone chats and occasionally seeing them at the play parties. I'm not really involved in the scene here, so to speak. I more it's Pittsburgh for me is more of a home base. Sure. Yeah. So I play heavy. Like oh, I went to OWK for ten years. I was really addicted to that. So I would take like a band of three to five guys and go to Czechoslovakia for a week and get out some really intense sadism. You know, so, well, and that would that would last me for about five or six months. It's very <laughs> intense. Uh, well, you know? let, let's talk about because very few people uh, may, may may know what OWK is and that it, it stood for Otherworld Kingdom. Yes. And I, I remember now. I've never been. I only remember the website. I remember reading about it, thinking it was heaven, and uh, it it was basically kind of treated as its own kingdom. 
Yes, it was. And um, essentially, you could you could go, and if you were a dominant woman, you could go and you could basically you live there for a month or so or whatever or a couple. You would have to have some dinero. It, it, they cost things. You they had a, a currency called doms. Right. When you would show up. You would you would check in, and your slaves would be. Uh, checked in uh, as creatures and you were told the rules. Uh, male creatures always had to wear a collar, had to defer to females and it was a riot because OWK was so strict that nobody could do it properly when they were there. The whole thing was like a giant performance art experiment and there would be men sitting on the chairs in the cafe and they weren't supposed to be in there so some big Brunhilde Dom would go in there with a writing crop, yo, yo, get on the floor, you're not supposed to be on chair. So the whole thing was really hilarious because the people who went kind of made it what it was and by the third or fourth day, everyone would be in the groove. And those men that couldn't get into space, well, they'd be locked up in a jail cell somewhere, really being punished. And those men who were out of line, well, they would have to crawl down the gauntlet in the Queen's Palace and get a caning. So what would happen towards the end of the celebrations is everything would fold in. And men who were running around saying, I can't have any marks, I don't want to do anything. Those are the very same men wanting to get canings and whippings. Yeah. So this whole thing would kind of feed on itself, but it would take several days to get there. So people would sometimes give up. They'd show up and they'd leave after half a day or a day. They didn't give it time to really grow. So my attraction to the place was the consensual, non-consensual type play style that they put across in their magazines and films. And I was really interested in that. And as a pro-dom, there's so much stuff that I can't do, that I would like to do, but I can't do it. Yeah. And OWK seemed a place where I could take people who are interested in extreme play, like extreme female supremacy or role reversal, and we were both happy because we were both getting to do what we wanted. But then I'd come back to Pittsburgh, and my play style would be so wonky because I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And it would take me a while to settle down again and get back in, okay, you know, the, the, I hate the client word, but let's face it, sometimes people will call themselves that to remind the pro-dom that they have wants and needs and rights. And, um, you know, I found it very interesting to learn about that side of my psyche uh, through going there. So I don't think it'd be possible to create something like that in America. The reason it worked there is there's a language barrier. There was kind of a brutality. Uh, when it first opened up, a lot of the Gardases were very young, and they didn't speak uh, English as even a third language. So there was this real interesting lack of communication that actually worked in, in a real funky way. So I found the whole thing was really kind of neat, and there hasn't been anything like it since. And I don't think there ever will be. I think it just was what it was. So it was kind of a giant backdrop, and you would go there to have an experience against the backdrop. But you had to put some work into creating what the experience would be like. You couldn't expect the OWK to just make your experience. It was a set that you could use, and there were other people there who were also kinky. So I guess the closest thing that reminds me to it would probably be FetFest, because they were providing a giant backdrop against which to have an experience. And that's kind of 60s in a way. Yeah, you know, and for that to happen out in Prague, well, as Lynn, where it was near, was really kind of odd how that all came together. And nobody really knows who was behind it. Um, I met the people who own it on paper. There were a couple, uh, a lady named Patricia and her husband, Michael. Uh, a couple owned it for a very long time. I don't know if they've sold it or if they still own it. But in its heyday, it really attracted a lot of couples and groups, more so than individuals. So men could go there as a retraining stay or for a session. So the OWK, a session was, you come for three days, you clean the castle, then you get whipped. 
then you go to jail cell. Then you know the session there was nothing like a session in a dungeon in America. Right. Completely different, and the rates were so low. I could send a slave of mine to OWK for ten days for five hundred dollars. Wow. I mean, it was ridiculous. So I was sending them there. As you come home, you tell me about your experience, and inevitably, the first few days they always hated it, but then they would get into the groove with it, and they'd make friends there. I mean, one of my slaves even said the queen gave him a hug on his birthday and made him a cake. I couldn't believe it. I said, you're joking. So there was a real human aspect to the whole thing. So people actually began to form bonds and become friends, uh, very much like lifestyle groups do here. So even though the media content they put out seemed so brutal and vicious, there were always some things there about going there that would lead you back. Like the guys would always sneak out at night from the stables They'd always scale the wall. They'd end up in the bar drinking. Well, they'd all become friends. Right. And then they'd come back. They'd have to sneak back in, and the Gardises would catch them, and they would all get a caning. So I think a lot of this stuff was just allowed to go on because it was interesting. It, it sounds like such a unique, like you said, experiment. Yeah. That, uh, and again, I remember when they used to, when people could do that, I remember reading about it and really wanting to save up so I could go because it sounded it sounded like, Everything in my own fantasies, you know, being, you know, when I was a, when I was, you know, in my early twenties, that's exactly how I wanted to live my entire life, you know, totally yeah. unrealistic, but, yeah. um, yeah, but it sounds it sounds very interesting, and I've met people who have gone, and, oh yeah, and uh, and they always have some interesting stories to tell about it. Oh, it's just the end became hilarious because the part of the the reason the whole thing I believe eventually ended uh, was just because there was only so far they could go with it. I mean, now they're still shooting there, of course, but they, they're no longer having the celebrations. Maybe they'll start again someday, I don't know. But they did recently sell the equipment. So I didn't want to say anything for the longest time because I really didn't know what was going on there. And there were times I would go there and absolutely hate it, and the next day I would love it. So I think it just kind of grew on a lot of us. And uh, it did become expensive after a while. I noticed the cost of things started to go up. Yeah. And the economy changed. I mean, when they first opened OWK, it was very inexpensive to go there. And then as they began to realize, oh, you mean I can sell this whip for $50? I mean, I, I, I could sell this for $200, not $50? Yeah. Or, I, you know, so I think what happened is capitalism. over there and it changed femdom over there tremendously and women who were working there well they could get their own websites and have their own slaves they don't need to be there anymore it was a progress happened but for a small period of time it was like a little jewel out there in the middle of nowhere where women could go and men could go and be really extreme and and lick their wounds for a few weeks or months afterwards and because it was only like once or twice a year, you get interested in doing it again. Because enough time goes by and you forget about all the little things that you didn't like. You just think about all the wonderful things. Right. I think there's something to be said about not doing BDSM all the time because of this. If you do BDSM constantly, you don't have something to look forward to. I found when I had the, the gay slave I was talking about earlier, I was doing BDSM so much, it was no longer special to me. Yeah. And I think what made OWK special is the fact that you could only go there once in a while. Yeah. So you would look forward to it. You know, like not putting out too much content. You want people to look forward to the next thing you're going to put out, kind of making them wait a little bit. So whoever was behind the masterminding of that was really kind of brilliant, how they kind of led the BDSM people into that. There hasn't been anything like it since. It would be very interesting to, to hear about, like to, to like you said, find out who was really behind it and yeah. like re, read the 
the sordid details about how it all started. I'm sure it's a, a hilarious. <laughs> it's either a hilarious or an incredibly scary story, or both. It was. I mean, it uh, it seems it sounds very unique. Maybe a bit of both, but the people that, uh, interestingly, the uh, the different clashes between the different cultures of people, uh, the Americans became very obnoxious to the Germans and the Austrians, and I developed a way of making fun of myself as an American and making fun of my slaves. We wore big, obnoxious red, white, and blue outfits, and you know, we just really hammed it up, and it, it enabled people to laugh, and then we became human beings, too, and we would have a better time. But there was also a lot of cultural friction, and any kind attention in BDSM makes it interesting you notice yeah so there was always a ton of tension there between people and I think that created a lot of spark that's interesting I, I kind of I sense that a little bit sometimes I've gone to I've gone to a, not many but a couple events where there have been uh, people who are into heavy DS and BDSM who are from California uh, compared to those who are more East Coast and mm -hmm. like it, I could, you know, I'm, I, I'm not going to generalize. Of oh, course. there's definitely a difference in style. I yes. Right, and it, so it was always kind of funny how uh, when I'd see like a, a, like at a play party where you'd have a bunch of California people and a bunch of uh, New Yorkers, the California people would be a little more, I don't want to say, well, crunchy. I don't know if this is the right word. They'd be a little more more spiritual, let's say. Oh, whereas... absolutely. They're doing flesh hooks and 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 dances and rituals and all of that right yeah. you don't you don't see that going on so much in the east coast right no. and the, 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 the east coast is like all right okay bend over you know that's the that's the ritual <laughs> yeah uh, grab your grab your socks you know that type of thing um snake but pit style are also very different Protoms yeah. are very different on both sides i find it interesting to go over there and feel how my style is really you know it's like a breath of fresh air to them but then also is sometimes a lady coming from the other side and and visiting your neck of the woods. So I think it's all good, and we complement each other. But I would say there's definitely a California style, absolutely. The whole thing about being the goddess and, and the shopping and all of that. And we're out here on the East Coast, and what is that? Right. We don't do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things that you mentioned uh, earlier, and you really didn't touch it on too much, and that is you, you mentioned being an emotional sadist. Ah, yes. Uh, I uh, get very excited when people cry. <laughs> so, like, because uh, I know I know people who are like that, who like enjoying the tears. Mm -hmm. um, can you ex explain what 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 gets you off on that? I don't exactly know. I just know that putting my sexual partner in some type of emotional duress for some reason, I have found my best sexual encounters were around those times. I'm not particularly proud of that. I think it's just a, a chip in my brain, but it's part of what makes me who I am. And I can enjoy encounters without imposing uh, uh, anxiety or angst on another person, but I find when I have imposed angst or anxiety, uh, it is more intense. Can you, can, you give an, uh, can you give me an example? Oh, let's say... Um, I would always have more than one relationship at a time when I was younger. And I know this wasn't politically correct, but I would enjoy the tension in between the other people. Not that they were vying or fighting for me, but that they were wondering why the hell they had allowed themselves to become involved in a triad or a rectangle. Right. And what's wrong with them? So I just kind of got off on the craziness of it all. And it was before I really knew what my sexuality was. You know, it was the, during the experimental days. So you'd have a love rhombus. Yes. Right. And um, I 
would stop myself. Okay, I can't do this anymore. I have to just be with one person. I'm not supposed to do that. So I think for me, being a pro-dom gives me the ability to be with more than one person, but with boundaries, of course. And that's part of the reason I can psychologically process it, because I am that way. Uh, so, you know, not that I'm having sex with everyone. Obviously, I'm not. But I was always kind of this way before I became a pro-dom. So um, part of the angst or anxiety I enjoyed is I would have a girlfriend, for example, and two boyfriends. Yeah. And I would arrange for them to come over so they would bump into each other. <laughs> And they wouldn't even say, oh, you ass, you, you know, cad, or get yeah. mad at me or even break up with me. But they would become more interested in that. So early on, I was attracting those kinds of relationships. And I find it real interesting when I'm a pro-dom and I have scenes happening. And I always want to leave an hour in between each scene so people don't bump into each other. I have to be very, that's why I say, as an emotional sadist, I have to be really careful about respecting boundaries of the people I see professionally they don't want a whole bunch of other people around I mean some of them do but most of them want the privacy and the secrecy so I have to take a step beyond myself but I think it's good because it's it's structure do you remember do you remember where, when you first identified that you had this quality because I mean I know a lot of people who and, and I, I know people who are emotional sadists who know that they're emotional sadists and they're some of the kindest people I know maybe because mm -hmm. they're maybe because they they are highly aware of it right they have to work on themselves they're probably also in therapy for it <laughs> could be could be but at the same time i know uh, some emotional sadists who yeah. are just assholes right because yeah. they oh, th sure. they don't know and i'm curious and those people are really interesting on film <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure I'm, I'm curious i'm curious like is there a point when you kind of you, when you realized oh okay this is how i am I'll go with the when the when the bell went off i yeah. think when i became emotionally secure in myself to be adult enough to commit to one person um, then I knew that all of this crazy stuff I could contain it in such a way and still enjoy it when I started to define I was probably 35 mm -hmm. when I really defined myself and became comfortable in my lifestyle and that's not particularly young or particularly old but uh, you know I got to know myself and got comfortable with the things about myself that maybe aren't the best things and found a way to channel that. So in a way, I've been able to take a quirk of my personality, uh, something, and even my professors told me after college, they're like, you know, this thing you're doing, this works for you. <laughs> because you don't get along with people that well. I mean, you could, and it's true. I've had jobs in the real world. I was in sales for a while. I was an archaeologist for a while. Actually, that job I worked out at fine. It was just very physically tiring. So I did some vanilla things. Um, but inevitably, my personality would come up against whoever was the authority figure. So I think having issues with authority figures is also something a lot of pro-doms have in common. We like being bad girls. We got that little edge because this is a naughty thing to do. It's something that's become cool, but it's still a naughty thing to do. So I get a lot of needs met, so to speak. And I think a lot of us do. <laughs> this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your schedule to, uh, to, to sit down and talk with me. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I hope you're willing to do it again in the future. Yeah. Thank you to Irene Boss and thank you for downloading Massacast, M A S O C A S T, at gmail.com. We'll see you in another couple weeks. <laughs>